the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 10. We'll look at the second part of this chapter as John takes that little book that Christ himself, the mighty angel who stands upon the earth, who is radiant and glorious in the vision of him, and he gives to John his declarations that he might eat them and become his prophet to the nations. Beginning in verse 8 of Revelation chapter 10, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat, and it will make your stomach bitter, but will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. As far as the reading of God's holy word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we ask this morning that we might hear your word and not only possess understanding of it, for it is sure that there are things in the book of Revelation that are at times cryptic, and mysterious in their symbolism, but you have given us the rest of your word as a guide as to how we are to understand not only this book, but what it says of your kingdom and you as king and your rule on earth now that you have taken the throne. O oh Lord, make us a people who love the king, who submit to your rule, and who find the taste of your lordship sweet in our mouths. We pray these things in your name. Amen. When Elizabeth Elliot, many of you who know or know who she is, followed her deceased, martyred husband to the land of Ecuador to minister to the Aka Indian tribe, that Indian tribe which had not so long ago slaughtered her husband, Jim Elliot, along with his friends and companions in the ministry, Nate Sate. Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udarian, she went burdened with the sorrow of having lost a beloved husband, but also seeking, having had the peace of God, the gospel shed abroad in her heart, to seek to minister to those who were lost in great darkness. And through the ministry of her and others who came after those five martyrs, Christ saw fit to save many and bring light to that dark place. Concerning his own call, Nate Sate wrote in a journal that it was published in the wonderful book. If you've not read it, you need to read it. Make it part of your homeschool curriculum or any curriculum <laughs> through Gates of Splendor, which was written almost in the same year that her husband was died, not long after. Nate Saint wrote, We say it costs too much. God himself laid down the law when he built the universe. He knew, when he, went, he knew when he made it, what the price was going to be. God didn't hold back his only son, but gave him up to pay the price for our failure and sin. Missionaries constantly face 
expendability. Jesus said, There is no man that hath left his house, or brethren, or sisters, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels, but shall receive a hundredfold now, in this time, and in the world to come, that is eternal life. Having paid the full cost of his own life, saint, and others, the deaths of his beloved brothers in ministry inspired countless others to go, not only to Ecuador, but to the furthest reaches of earth, so that heaven might be filled with Christ worshipers from many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. This is not a unique story. It is the story of the Great Commission. It is the sweet and the bitter. It is the ministry of the Word of God that fills us both with stories that are full of success, but also of great sorrow down through the ages, yet Christ is glorified, and he is glorified in both, such that the world may reject it and even take our lives for proclaiming it, but we know this, that the word of God will have its effect, and it will break even the hardest of hearts, and it will bring comfort and light and peace. This is the ministry that Christ himself was calling John the Apostle to and had already called to prophesy concerning. It is the ministry of the little book. Two points that I want to make this morning. The first, that little book, the little book. And then second, the sweet and sour of proclamation. Let's look at the first point this morning. The little book. Now, last week, as we were jumping back into the book of Revelation, we are coming in a sort of interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet, just like there was an interlude between the sixth and seventh seal being opened. And in these interludes, what we see is why things are the way they are. They are the way they are because Christ is king. He is upon the throne of heaven and earth. And here, John sees this mighty angel standing, as it were, upon the earth with one foot in the sea and one foot in the land, which many commentators, rightly picking up on the language of the whole of Scripture, refers to the two people groups of history, Jew and Gentile. And what Christ has done and is doing with his authority, his rule and reign, is he is uniting all kinds of men under his glorious righteous rule. So, as John sees this, Christ says, now is the time for the mystery of God to be revealed. That mystery is that Christ has made of the two one. We see this in the epistles, that Christ came to abolish, to tear down the dividing wall of hostility between the old and new covenant, between the Jew and the Gentile, so that all, through Christ, by faith in him, may come to salvation. This is the new group, as it were, by revelation, the new people group, the new church. It is a church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as this is being revealed, there are some things which we do not know, some things John was told to not say that would come later, maybe even later for us. Christ then, through an angel, gives to John the word of that revelation. 
and he eats it. Then you may go, well, wait a second. That seems strange. But let's remember, Revelation is symbolic of a number of things. And this is symbolic itself. What is the book? What does it mean to eat it? Why is it sweet and bitter? And what is the significance of John prophesying of the bringing in of every nation, people, tongue, and king? So, what is the little book? Well, the little book is the declaration that Christ is Lord. It is here what remains of what Christ would reveal of his lordship on earth. It is the prophecy that Christ will have glory over every people, nation, tongue, and king. And so it is not enough to simply say that it is the word of God. It is. But it is the word of God that culminates. It is the tip of the spear. It is that great applicatory point that Jesus Christ is Lord. Kiss the son, lest he grow angry with you and you perish in the way. And so it is the word of God specifically, unmistakably applied to men. It's what I've heard called close application. Now, there are very many modes and operations in terms of how people think of preaching and what preaching ought to do, but if preaching is not applied, it is not preaching. Preaching is not teaching. It is the proclamation of the Word of God and its call to you to be allied to Christ. This is what John was called to do. This is what John was about to consume. It was the lordship, it was the rule and reign of Christ Jesus. It was the marrow of the matter. Something like what Paul referred to in the book of 1 Corinthians when he went to that church that was in the midst of great conflict and he said, I came to you knowing and preaching simply one thing, Christ and him crucified. Now that center unfolds and applies itself in a variety of ways. And Paul does this in the book of 1 Corinthians where he deals with matters of pride and sexual immorality and modesty and peace and taking care of the poor. But all of those things, all of the law can be summarized in Christ and him crucified. Christ is Lord of your life. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you. That's the little book. We are people of the little book. And though men know of some of its contents, there is much of Scripture that is devoted to a right interpretation of that stuff out there. Those trees wave their hands for the glory of God. Rivers clap to the glory of God. Mountains tremble and they utter voice and sound to the glory of God. The heavens. Did you notice in the West when we stopped calling space the heavens? And we called it space. Why is it called space? Because a bunch of secularists, it wasn't that they lost poetry. It's that they lost God as the great designer of creation. And so nothing can be there. It's just nothingness. But it's not, is it? Stars are loud. They burn. 
and our sun is the smallest of many stars, do you think it makes a noise as it consumes its gas? I imagine that noise would be deafening if you could even get close enough to hear it, which you cannot. And what is the noise of that burning? Christ is Lord of all. And so we read in the Psalms that the the firmament, the heavens declare the glory of God. It is man that wishes to turn the volume down on the things that remind us of the covenantal faithfulness of God. Just like little children in worship. You may not want to turn the volume up, but you shouldn't want to turn the volume down on our children. What do children remind us of? The blessing of the covenant of Abraham. It's beautiful. And we had a little one here who wanted to sing the doxology. I could sense it. She just was a little bit ahead of everybody else. (laughs) And who is saying amen after the pastor more often than anyone else? It's our little children. Why? (laughs) Because God made them to take good things into them and to speak them back out. This is what John was getting ready to do. And the little book is the good revelation of God Unto salvation. So what was John doing by eating it? Well, what is eating? Well, if you're like me, you do not eat to live. You may not quite live to eat. You're maybe somewhere in the middle. But you stop and you look at the good thing that has been made in its presentation And you take it into yourself and you have for that moment a relationship with that thing. And as it goes into your mouth and your taste buds engage with the unique um, chemical properties of that particular food, you have an experience either of great disappointment or elation. And so... John is taking the word of God into himself so that it might become part of him. This vision of John ingesting the word is not unlike the scene where Isaiah encounters the Lord and the Lord comes to him with a burning coal and touches it to his mouth. And he is purifying and equipping his mouth for the ministry of proclamation or Jeremiah who speaks with the same kind of language, or Ezekiel, which the book of Revelation has much in common with, and also that of Daniel. If John was to be a faithful prophet, he must speak a faithful word. And you cannot preach that which you have not yet first eaten. In fact, this is the primary responsibility of a minister of the gospel, is that Monday through Saturday, he's eating. And on Sunday, like a mother bird, if this image is not too gross for you, he spits it up. He regurgitates it. He has digested it, and then he proclaims it in such a way that as it's had surgery on his heart, it can have surgical influence on your heart. And if he remains unchanged, how little that word may be. Now, it is still the word of God, but the intention of the Lord is that the ministers of the gospel would go out armed with, in their souls, the content of his revelation and the call to repent and align yourself with the king. 
So what was John doing by eating it? He was taking it into himself. This was the call. He was embracing the call. He was not only embracing as an apostle, as a minister, as a preacher, but even as a faithful saint. What I mean by that is this. It is not simply to the professional, to the one who has been to seminary, who has been ordained and licensed to preach, but any and all in whom the Holy Spirit resides, all of you, by God's grace, have this, when you have tasted of the goodness of the little book, you cannot help but say, have you tried this? This morning as my wife was preparing food for the fellowship meal, unfortunately she's at home sick. She's not here, but she made this brownie dish that has like peanut butter, something. And the last text I got from her was, it was so good. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and now all I can think about is, guess what? Should I go to the dessert table? I think I shall. Because someone told me whom I trusted greatly, who knows of my tastes, and she knows that I like chocolate and peanut butter. Eat this. <laughs> and you know what will happen? I'll eat it, and then I'll look at my friend next to the table, and I'll say, you don't want any of that. I'll eat the rest. No, I'll say, you need to try this. Now, here is where it gets hard. When you go to that restaurant, when you watch that thing, when you've read that book, when you've had that experience, and you come to someone and say, it's incredible, and they look at you like you're crazy. <laughs> and we'll get to that response in a moment. But for now, you and I must first begin our life of Christian discipleship as those who look at the Word of God, who encounter it, and we say to our hearts, drink deeply, eat, consume, give me, verse 9, the little book. But it comes with a warning, <laughs> right? You know the warning label. Sweet to the taste, bitter to the stomach. Well, look at that. But for now, let us say this. If we are anything, we are a people of the little book. Little does not mean insignificant. It is the remainder of what Christ has yet to reveal through us and in us to the world. All right, let's move to the second point then. The sweet and sour of proclamation. The word of God is sweet. In fact, there are times in our lives where the word of God is so sweet when we sing it in worship, when we read it. Have you ever had that occasion where you've read the same passage over and over, but there is a moment in your life where there is a certain whole soul thirst, soul hunger for the truth of Scripture that when you read it, you cannot help but weep or be moved because it gets to that point, that place, that, that sensitive part of you, and you cannot help but go, oh man, boy did I need that. Now there are times where you need it and it may not be so sweet. Oof, that hurts. But even still, it's like a wound from a friend. Even though it may be painful, 
to the one who is submissive and loves the word of God, it is either by second taste or by first incredibly sweet. In fact, we just confessed it this morning. In Psalm 19, y'all read that section. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. What is it? What is they? They are the decrees, the commands. It is the revelation of God. And in Psalm 119, the same thing. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to the mouth. It's like those first moments in dating or courtship. And when I was dating or courting or whatever word is approved, it was the phone. Now it's texting. Texting doesn't have the same effect. You know why? Because it's not words. It's not words. Stop texting. Start calling. And better yet, ask your parents if they can come over so that you can look at them in the face and hear their words. And I remember talking to my wife and just, it was nothing. It was just the sound of her voice. And it created in my heart a desire to be better than what I was. It stirred me. And there are times in my life where I have been cold to the words of the Lord. Where I have been struggling with sin, not wanting to hear what I know I would hear if I were in worship. Because I would be convicted and have to do something about that thing. But here John takes the book. And the angel tells him, it will taste sweet, but it will turn your stomach. In fact, one of the sweetest statements lifted from scripture as it relates to the history of catechism and confession. I think comes from Heidelberg Catechism question number one. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, All things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's sweet. What sweet words come to us from Scripture and the doctrines that are comprised from Scripture. Sweeter still than that, Parents, when your children come up and profess Christ or you see a friend or neighbor having labored much for the salvation of their soul and they take and they eat and they go, that is pleasant to the taste. That is sweet. In fact, John Newton wrote, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes our sorrows, heals our wounds and drives away our fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. 
You can have such an encounter that it drives you to say in your heart, this is good. To take it, to eat it, to drink it, to imbibe, to ingest, to make it your only hope and comfort in life and in death. To see Christ dead, buried, risen, ascended, and to see him seated upon the throne, he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. Those truths in the believer's ear and in their heart stir him, stir her to sweet comfort and confidence. Now, here is the dilemma. In our family, we have people who like tater tots, we have people who like french fries, we have people who like ketchup and people who do not. I like tater tots, I like french fries, and I love ketchup. But then there are some Philistines in our family who have yet to accept the true way who reject ketchup. And I understand that. It's a little weird when you think about it. Not everybody has the same tastes. That even as John was to take into himself the word of God and find it sweet, That as he goes out into the world, there will be, by many, a rejection of that word so that it will be sour and bitter to him. So that when you go to an individual and say, do you see how good this is? And they go, I don't like that. And you look at them like they're crazy. Or within a family, you have either godly parents or not. But within the next generation, children who have embraced the gospel, children who have not, and they grew up in the same homes and you wonder, why did some learn to eat and some did not? Why are the tastes different? Because the word of God is not received in the same way by all men. And when the minister of the gospel, the prophet, the priest, the apostle, the preacher, even the saints who proclaim faithfully the word of God, they will not get the same response every time. And there will be some who kill, who do not thank you for your service by rejecting the word of God. Why is that? Because what the word of God asks of men, the preaching of the word of God, though it can be sweet, It is only sweet when you have succumbed and given yourself over to the king of heaven and earth. Otherwise, it is bitter, it is sour, because it is a call to complete and utter submission to the king of heaven and earth. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with even at times your own raising. It has everything to do with the fact that there are those by God's sovereign decree who will stand against him no matter how hard you try. And the more people you go to, the more you will realize that. And not only this, but when we go out into the world armed with the word of God, 
and we are speaking faithfully the rule and reign of Christ Jesus, there is one who is to his very core opposed to giving up any territory whatsoever to Christ's kingdom, and that is Satan and his demons, such that wherever the church goes out in triumph, Satan is sure to follow, to undermine, and to wreck the work of the saints. Now you may say, that's crazy talk, and I'm saying to you, Yes. <laughs> Here is what the world has done. They have emptied the world of the cosmic conflict between good and evil, such that they say a person is a, a blank slate, that he is morally pure, that it is culture that corrupts. Now, culture can corrupt. But the battle for the souls of men is a battle. It is a war, and it wages, and it wages on these terms. Eternity is in the balance. And as much as you treasure the glory of God and long for his appearing, there are those who hate such a thought. And they will do anything under the power and influence of the devil and of demons to silence you and to turn the appetites of men against Christ as Lord and Savior. Because when a man stands up and calls people to repentance, it is a declaration of war every time. It may not be to you because you like the way it sounds. You like the way it tastes. And in fact, to understand this, let's go back to the book of Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, I'll read verses 15 through 18 and then 27, verse 27, as the conclusion of that section. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by, he's having a heavenly vision, not unlike John, and asked him... The truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Here it is. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. And then moving to verse 27, the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all his dominions shall serve and obey him. Just on the face of it, to be a saint is to testify that in Christ the earth is ours the earth does not belong to the world. They are temporary residences in a place that will one day be freely given to us as an inheritance. And Satan knows this. And he wants to take everything away from you. He wants you to give up your inheritance. Or to not seek to gain for yourself through the faithful actions of the church more of that inheritance. He wants you to stop like the one with the one talent who said, I was afraid so I went and buried my talent. And the Lord said, you are a wicked servant. Depart from my presence. Reformation has five. We're not a one talent church. Don't think that. 
Okay, maybe we're three. I don't know. But we have been so uniquely blessed by God because of the faithfulness of the Lord to show himself to us through the word preached, in our prayers, in the table, all of these things. There is, a, there is no partition between the clear preaching of the word of God in your lives and you're then to take that and to go into the world and say, you're going to have to learn to love this. <laughs> and parents, you've been through that. As you fed your children, you need to eat this. I remember bringing my mother to tears one time, criticizing the food that she made. And with bitterness, <laughs> she received that. It was an unjust criticism. I was a fool, and I needed to repent. But there will be those to whom we go, and for our trouble, they will crucify us. They will burn us at the stake. They will run us through with spears. It will be bitter. And I imagine if you've been active in the pursuit of the lost, you've had those moments of bitterness, rejection, just even a, ugh, whatever. All this work, all the time. But it is still sweet. And despite the immediate effect, be it sweet or sour, there is still a mission. It doesn't matter, ultimately. What the response is, we know that globally, overarchingly, ultimately, verse 11, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. The church right now in the West is so wrapped up with, if we're going to package the word of God to the world, we need to wrap it in a lot of chocolate. But that's not how it works. Give it to me straight, undistilled, undiluted, 100% word of God. Bring it to bear on my soul so that even if I look at my pastor and go, I don't like this, I've got to contend with God first. That's what God wants in the ministry of the word. You are contending with him and his kingdom. But the effect of it, though some will hear it and they will believe like words of life and it will elevate and, and give comfort to their souls, there will be those who reject it. Its effect is what? That written in the little book is the reclamation of people's nations, tongues, and kings. This is who we find in the book of Revelation. We see it in chapter 5. We see it in chapter 7. We see it later. But what will come in the ministry of the sweet and the bitter is what we find in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. They sang... A new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign upon the earth. You know, for a culture that is so obsessed with multi-ethnic inclusion, we have a very ineffective ministry strategy. 
We are wholly European and enlightenment focused. And that is offensive. Because we think first we have to tell the world we're their friends and then after many, 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 many months of preparation, then we can get to the gospel. There's no strategy like that in Revelation 10. It's what? Person, truth, bring them together. And they either like opposites attract positive and negative or they repel one another. But that's not up to us, is it? We simply spit out what we have taken in. And the effect is what? That the host gathered around the throne is global. And the reason why that is important to us is not because of some strange ideal of multi-ethnicity, as though that is in and of itself a moral priority. The priority is this. Christ will be worshipped by all. There will be representatives of his kingdom everywhere. McDonald's has got nothing on the church. Coke, nothing. It is a global, cosmic, everlasting kingdom. Such that even in the meantime, the ministry of the church is sweet and bitter The effect is what? Global cosmic triumph. So here is my clear exhortation this morning after all of this. I've had a few sort of woven throughout. Develop a taste for what triumph in history looks like. Don't just be a person who likes the dessert table. Eat your veggies. Be willing to take the bitter and the sweet. And there will be times where you taste the bitter. Think of the apostles. John is the only one who is alive at this point, who walked with Christ. They were all killed. But you know what Paul says, who was one day killed as well? Though the word of God, or though I may be bound, the word of God is never bound. Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He stands upon the sea. He stands upon the shore. And by his power and by his word, he will use little instruments like you and me who take the word and delight in its sweetness and go out. And whatever the response may be, the ultimate, the ultimate effect, the ultimate fruit is what? Peoples, nations, tongues, and kings will be gathered around the throne. Let's pray.